So where do you see yourself at the end of your career? Financially, spiritually, emotionally, um, the awards that you've won? Because that's very important. You know, I just had a conversation with somebody today. It's not how you start in the NFL, it's how you finish. Welcome to Needing Though, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Andrew Hawkins, also known as Hawk. Now, I'm usually here to guide you all through the extended version of the Needing Dough video series. But today, we have a brand new episode of our mini-series, Branching Out. On Branching Out, I sit down with amazing athletes who have found success outside their sports careers and have created new pathways for themselves in all sorts of areas. Now, before we get started with this conversation, featuring NFL legend Eddie George, make sure you subscribe to Needing Dough the Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. It is fast, it's free, and it helps others find the show. And now, here is Eddie George. Eddie is one of the greatest running backs of his generation. He won the 1995 Heisman Trophy at Ohio State, and when he got to the league, he was a four-time Pro Bowler. Off the field, he earned his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University in Chicago. He is a true renaissance man. Eddie has started multiple successful businesses, he teaches at Ohio State, and he made a splash like we've never seen when he transitioned into acting on Broadway. In front of a live audience in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, here is my conversation with the one and only Eddie George. So let's get it started, man. You are from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. All right, what is your earliest memories of money? Oh, man. Uh, well, knowing I didn't have any, personally speaking, <laughs> growing up. Uh, shout out to Abington, North Hills, Philadelphia. My aunt's in the audience, so I got to do that. But um, <laughs> um, didn't have much in terms of myself. My grandmother worked hard. My grandfather worked. My, my aunts, uncles, my mother uh, worked really hard. Um, but in terms of uh, generational wealth, didn't have a true knowledge of that. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, I worked... Uh, my first job was at a 7-Eleven when I was 13, 15 years old, 15, yeah, 14 or 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I was just, I got tired of watching, you know, all my classmates come to school with Stuff. the new, the new, <laughs> new Lotto, right. the Shell Toe Adidas and, and right. clothes and the Lees with the any 80s, 90s babies in the audience. Y'all remember the Lee jeans back in the day? Yeah, so (laughs) I wanted to look fly, but I couldn't afford to do it. And uh, uh, instead of going another route um, of of attaining money, um, I said I was going to get a job at the 7-Eleven. So I worked the 7-Eleven, worked night shifts. Uh, Of course, all my friends started coming through and wanted to get hookups. Did you get a hookup? (laughs) A couple on the okay. slide, you I was know. About to say, don't yeah, be a bad yeah, friend, I, I man. did, I did. And family <laughs> members coming up, you know, worked the Seven Eleven, and uh, I found out quickly just how Uncle Sam will eat up, you know, the five dollars an hour that I made, you right. know, and that I, I, honestly, I owed them money because I would take stuff home with me and take right. it out of my paycheck. So that that was my early introduction to, I guess, being uh, phys- physically re- responsible. So that's how you learned about taxes? Oh, quickly, yes. Yeah, really quickly, firsthand. Um, what, what were some of the early lessons that uh, were instilled in you about money? Just, again, not coming from it, because I'm very much the same way, right? You mm-hmm. don't come from a lot of money. You know, I, I always knew I wanted it. One thing my grandfather would always tell me, and I say this on the podcast, a penny saved is a penny earned. Oh, yeah. So here I am, even at 33, hoarding money. Yeah. 
because I'm scared not to have it. Funny story about grandfathers and saving money. My uh -huh. grandfather used to save these quarters, all right, because he used the quarters for tolls when we drive up to Boston every year to, see, to go see my uncle. My uncle Kevin lived in Boston. And uh, one day, me and my cousin was playing in his closet, playing hide and seek or doing something. We came across this box with a bunch of quarters in it. Like, it must have been $500 worth of quarters. Dang. And we looked in this box, he was like, oh, shit, we found the treasure box, you know? We were like, oh, man. He said, we're not going, we're just going to take a little bit here and there, get some candy, run down to the store, go to 7-Eleven, get some cookies, steaks. Right. So over time, we just kept chipping away at it, chipping away at it. And by the time we got to the summer, because uh, it started in the fall, by the time we got the summer, it was time for us to go on our trip. He looked in his box, and it was empty. It was gone. And they were like, well, who took the money? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who did it. Well, to say the least, my, my, my grandmother wore me out. <laughs> um, uh, and then my aunt, and then my uncle. I got back then. You went down the line, you yeah, know. Yeah. All everybody got the piece of your ass when you <laughs> acted up. So it was, um, it was an introduction to my my grandfather, who he knew understood how to save money, and uh, that was just something that you know that just triggered in me a, a long time ago about right. uh, how how to save and what to save it for. So do you remember opening up your first bank account? Oh, my my mother. Um, actually got me my first bank account. Yeah. Didn't have a penny to put in it, but she wanted to introduce me to the concept of saving money, having my own account. Mm -hmm. um, as I got older, uh, put money aside to save and so forth, mm -hmm. but I had no money to do it. It wasn't until um, I got into the NFL that I was introduced to um, opening up my account and right. really seeing what the landscape of financial literacy is, yeah. you know. Um, number one, uh, my, my first experience with a financial advisor, I told my mom, I said, Mom, I want you to vet out five different advisors mm -hmm. and bring them to me, and then I'll make that decision. And she's like, okay. So she bought a couple of different guys, actually mm -hmm. this guy out of Atlanta who had – all the stars, entertainers, athletes. Right. Um, it was a boutique firm. And um, there was just something about him, though, that I just couldn't really uh, vibe with. It wasn't, right. didn't resonate with me. And, it, you know, he brought me down from Columbus um, one weekend, got me my Sky Pager, got me my phone. Uh, gave me some, some cash to go to Magic City right. and all that good <laughs> right, stuff. Right, nice little recruiting trip. Yeah, they're still running strong, too. Um, <laughs> I haven't been, but, you know, years so ago. So I hear, yeah. Yeah, so I hear. Uh, and he brings me to his office, and he says, uh, well, okay, so we're moving the things forward. We're going to start getting your account set up and so forth. Um, I just need you to sign this power of attorney so, you can, so I can set everything up. And something in my spirit told me not to do it. And even in Ohio State locker room, it says, whatever you do, do not sign a power of attorney. That's the one so, lesson, yeah. That's the one lesson. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do it. Move the story forward. I wind up signing my first contract um, with the Houston Oilers. Mm -hmm. It was roughly a $3 million signing bonus. Um, I signed it right there on the spot in Trinity uh, College in San Antonio. My agent was there. My mother was there. And right after I signed it, did my interview, right after I did my interview, he, my agent pulls me aside and says, yo, I, I, the word on the street about your financial advisor, I wouldn't advise you to go with him because of some things I'm hearing in the streets. 
And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. And, 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 and so don't, bring, don't give it to me, but just put it somewhere safe. So I told my mom to go back up to Philly, take it up to Philly, and mm. I'll deal with this individual later. So about two days later, I get a phone call on my flip phone from the bank in Houston where I was supposed to put the money. They said, mm. well, Mr. George, did you um, allow someone to come in and, and, and to sign off and to take your funds? Because they were trying to move it to another account in, in Charlotte. I said, no, no, I didn't. I, I didn't even put the money in there. I said, okay, we're just checking. Three days later, I get a call from the FBI because he was wow. found caught in, in South America because he was running a Ponzi scheme. So that was my introduction to the world of athletes and finances in the NFL. Wow. And it still happens to this day. Absolutely. And yeah. a lot more often than people realize yeah. because they don't have the right foundation. So right? The, the moral of the story is, you know, God bless my mother. It was the blind mm -hmm. leading the blind. Yep. You know, yep. not knowing what questions to ask, not knowing uh, what a transparent uh, financial system looks like. Right. You know, where you're getting the actual documents, you know, yep. how your money should be at a different institution, should be at a different institution and should be secured and insured. Mm -hmm. And the only way money is moved is with your written consent or if you say so, yep. you know, so that's that's what I that's what I've learned. Well, that, and, and that's a that's a good point, because that's kind of the whole baseline of this podcast right is you know when you come from these areas like you know my area your area and it's you're trying to wrap your mind around now having all of these funds that you've never had in your life and then everyone telling you what to do with that money people that weren't there when you couldn't buy a carton of milk a week earlier all right you know um so it's tough but the, having those conversations and you know not just with your kids and around the family is like the only thing you really have to cling to no question i mean when you first when you get you know, a hundred million dollars, you automatically uh -huh. think it's a hundred million dollars. Like, yeah. that, man, the things I'm going to buy with that, the business I'm going to start, the people I'm going to help out and, and give back in a great way, you know, gosh, a hundred million, well, off the top. 50. Gone. 50. <laughs> and depending on what state you play in, you play in California, it's yep. more like 60. Yep. You know, and then the, 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 the states that you play in, mm -hmm. you're going to get taxed on that. So you, you count all that, that's 50 off the top. Then it's the agent fees. 3% of 3 that. 3% of that Gone. off. And then your, your lifestyle and then everything else that goes along with it. And before it's said and done, you know, you're looking at some, a, a, a decent number. Mm -hmm. But if you spend more than you have made, then that's where you get into trouble and not understanding that. So if you walk out the house thinking, I have $100 million, no, you really don't. Yeah. So that's what I tell young athletes. I say, if you live by the gross, you'll die by the net. Mm. So if you live by this number on top, you will damn sure die by the net. That's so fact. set your budget to the net number yep. and learn to save on that number. I played seven years in the NFL. So I ain't come nowhere near $100 million. So if they tell you you made $100 million, I, would, I wouldn't be up here <laughs> if I did. I promise you that. Um, <laughs> but let's go back a little bit. At what age did you know man, like, I could probably do something with the game of football. Like, when did it click for you that you knew you had something special beyond just what you were doing at the yeah, time? Honestly, man, uh, growing up in the neighborhood, playing free-for-all, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was I, like four I, years I, old, huh? Five. <laughs> five outside playing on the hot concrete in the summer, playing in the snow, 
Um, it was always a passion of mine to play football at a high level. Mm -hmm. Everywhere I went, I had a football in my hand. I was forcing kids to play football. <laughs> we don't want to play. You play hide and seek. No, let's play a game of football and hide and seek. <laughs> and, and then, but, you know, it was, it was crazy. Um, but I knew kind of then that's, that was my path. I wanted to play ball. I really didn't know um, that I had a, a real legit chance to go, um, be prof go professionally until I kind of got in college. Mm -hmm. um, came from a military academy in Virginia. It was shipped yep. down there from Philadelphia at the age of 15. Uh, played at Fork Union Military. Anybody from VA in the house? No, Virginia? VA, all right. Yeah, one. Okay. I know Fork Union. You're excited. You know Fork Union? I know Fork Union. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Went there for three years. Um, then got recruited to Ohio State. And it was my freshman year, I had some success, fumbled twice against Illinois my freshman year. Didn't see the field again until my junior year. And it was kind of then that I said, ooh, okay, I got an opportunity yeah. to, to do something special. I was the, num the number one rated fullback in the country. Wow. Uh, fullback. But I, I'm not a fullback. You ain't a fullback. <laughs> you know, no. You're a big tailback. Yeah. You ain't a fullback. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you so – when you made the decision to go to Ohio State, uh -huh. what played into that decision and how did family uh, influence that? Um, you know, when I wanted to go to Penn State. Growing up mm. in Pennsylvania, yeah. you want to wear the black shoes, you want yep. the, black, the blue and white, you know, play for Joe Pa. That was it. You know, yep. I wanted to play full tailback, win the Heisman, all that at Penn State, bring a national championship back home. But when uh, Joe Pa looked at me, after the game they played against Notre Dame in 1992. I was in the locker room. Uh -huh. I was standing taller than most of their guys. He looked at me up and down, pulled his running back coach to the side, whispered in his ear, and the running back coach came over and said, hey, who's, who's recruiting you? I said, well, right now it's Louisville, Virginia, um, and Ohio State. He says, we're gonna talk to you next week. That Monday, get a phone call. And it's Fran Gander. He says, Eddie, we wanna bring you up for a visit. And uh, we're really excited about having you. We remember you when you came to our football camps. Man, have you grown up so much and so forth. Just give right. me the whole spill, yep, right? Yep. Then I said, listen, I have to be honest. Uh, and, and a lot of schools are, are recruiting me, but they want me to play a different position. What are you looking at me as? It says, well, we're looking at you for linebacker. I said, oh, yeah, that's exactly. I said, oh, I said, no, I'm so close to my dream. So not going to Penn State was, um, was, a, was a huge factor. But when I went to Ohio State, it was the worst visit of my life, not because it was cold, yeah. but they try to match you with guys that have like personalities. And because uh -huh. I went to a military school, they put me with two squares. You know, two <laughs> dude. I mean, look, I'm in an all-boys school, and the last thing I want to do is sit in somebody's uh, apartment watching movies. <laughs> Take me to the union party. I want to see the girls, man. I got 24 hours. I got, I got to see it, you know. I got, I got to live it. I got to breathe. I got to see the, the, the stepping. I got, to, you know, I got to see help the turnies. Let me help me. Yeah. So didn't get that. Uh, my last day. So naturally, you signed there. But here's here's <laughs> why though. Uh, we go to the Ohio Stadium, and when it was nobody in there, it was the end of the season, and to me, that's when. The stadium is loudest because it just reeks of greatness. You mm -hmm. can just envision Woody Hayes and uh, uh, Archie Griffin and Chris Carter, the great Ohio State players playing in the stadium. And again, I, I'm just a person that lives by the spirit. It was like, this is the place. Yeah. Because it was perfect. I.O. baby. Yes, sir. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, and it was this, it was the place that that I felt like I could really make my mark. And back then, the, the backfield is loaded. And when Cooper gave me the the sign, it's listen, we we can't promise you you're gonna play, or even start, but we're gonna give you an opportunity to compete. Mm-hmm. I said that's all I need. That's give it. me the opportunity. Give me 18 inches of daylight. That's all I need. And uh, that's amazing. And then and, and took it from there. We'll continue my conversation with Eddie right after the break. All right, now let's get back to my conversation with Eddie George. All right, so the rest of it, so you're a Buckeye, so you're on campus. Can you describe for our audience what it's like being a college athlete and some of the obstacles financially that you face? Oh, man. Phew, yeah, buddy. <laughs> you know, it's a shame that uh, now, even to this day, 2019, that these athletes are getting penalized for doing something simple as having a girlfriend come out right. visit you and just ridiculous. But the challenges are definitely there. You know, we get a Pell Grant, we get a stipend, we get all that. But in order to live off campus, you got to pay for you got to pay rent. Mm-hmm. And that stipend only lasts but a couple of months. Yep. You got 12 months out of the year. So you got to figure some things out. So, for example, um, I, I was behind on my rent like about three months because <laughs> um, I still had to pay for utilities. I still had other things, clothes, school, some school books and, that I had to, uh, to get. So it, it was real short. So there were plenty of times when I bounced checks purposely at Pizza Hut. Um, just, just to, to get, eat, just, just to, to eat. eat on Friday nights, Saturday wow. nights because training table was closed down. So Saturday through 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 Sunday, I had to figure things out. So I had to go out to North Campus with with Keisha, and then mm-hmm. I had to go over to uh, <laughs> West Campus with with Susie, and uh, <laughs> you know, just to get the oodles and noodles, and you dress it up with a little shrimp, <laughs> you know, and then you keep it moving. That's real. <laughs> and it still happened in 2019. Yeah. That's the sad part about it. Yeah. No, I, I remember working literally a full-time job in the summer because we didn't get a, a summer scholarship check. Right. But we had to be there to work out because coaches are like, if you care, you're here. And I was working full-time at a factory. Yeah. You know, working out in the morning, eight-hour day, come back from the practice. So I want to ask you this. You get to the NFL, right? Fast forward, um, first-round draft pick. Um, now you're making – the money that you always dreamed of, what were some of the early lessons um, that you learned about making smart money decisions? Uh, earlier on, uh, because of what happened to me with the, the, the bullet that I just missed yeah. um, with the financial advisor, I was really cautious. Um, still didn't know what questions to ask. Still didn't know who to trust with my finances. Um, I just kept it in the bank. And I felt like, if anything, if I had it at a bank, it wouldn't it would right. be okay. Right. But uh, it wasn't until I met a gentleman, my financial advisor, Greg Eastman, mm-hmm. who uh, really took an interest in me to work with me. Um, but he, he was teaching me about how to build wealth and how he gets paid, you know, mm-hmm. on commission-based or there's rat fees, and this is how we do it. And he said, I'm gonna keep it very simple, a very simple approach. It's not gonna be a whole bunch of jargon, financial jargon and hedge fund this and this and that, private equity, we wanna keep it right down the middle. Mm-hmm. How much did I give you and when? How much is it worth today? And that, that, that simple concept, and we're going to put it into uh, something that's going to be in, if insurance, 
something that's going to hold a nest egg and grow over time. And uh, something that, you know, if we want to use a, a small portion of your net worth toward uh, a venture or uh, a hedge fund that offers a little bit more risk, it will do that. But the approach, the approach has been a base hits approach. Manufacture your runs through mm -hmm. wealth management. Use compounding interest as your, as your vehicle to long-term wealth. It's a long road right. to get there, but I, I think you know, slow and steady wins the race for How me. How prepared did you think you were? Did you feel when you got to the NFL to, to manage that money? I wasn't. You were I, I, nah, man. I mean, and how often did you think about your financial future while you were playing? And what, uh, at what year were you like, yo, I got to start? You know, really um, out the down. gate, you know, I, I was blessed to have some really good mentors in the locker room, um, guys like Marcus Robertson, uh, mm -hmm. Steve Jackson, um, Mel Gray. Uh, they all kind of taught me to say, hey, man, you see these little pamphlets on your, your locker about for your 401k, your annuity it'd be smart for you to really take advantage of that, right. you know, through the NFLPA. And I did that. So I, my check automatically, when it came in, a portion of that money was going into that account mm -hmm. every single year. So that's kind of what I did too, in addition to my, my relationship with my financial advisor. Yeah. So um, it was really just, uh, my agent challenged me to understand more about the finances, pick up a book. Um, uh, the Millionaire Next Door, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, mm -hmm. uh, Understanding um, uh, uh, Wealth, you know, uh, a book that I read to this day, you know, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham is also a fantastic book. You know, uh, Warren Buffett, you know, that was kind of his mentor. So just, just understanding the concepts of that. So that's kind of when I, I took advantage of it or really took um, heed to it. because so I knew that football was going to end. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to save, you know, up to a certain amount. I wanted to get up to, uh, you know, 12, 10 to $12 million liquid mm -hmm. and build off of that and kind of try to live off the interest. That was my philosophy back then. So yeah. um, I was, that was definitely a goal in mind. What, at what stage of your career did you start thinking about building other businesses of mm -hmm. your own? Um, that's a great question because, you know, on that level, you have to really be all in. Right. You can't try to act and try to run another career outside of football. If you're really about that life and mm -hmm. you really want to be the best at what you, in your craft, um, you got to be committed 24-7. And right. so there were no off-seasons. You mm -hmm. know, your off-season was training, and, and that's, that's, that's how it was. Yep. So it wasn't until, like uh, – um, 2001 when I my, had a toe surgery that uh, I had time to sit and think I couldn't work out as much as I wanted to I had to go to rehab so I said I'm gonna use this time um, to go back and get my degree in landscape mm -hmm. architecture and and figure out how I can leverage um, my relationships and my 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 major into a viable business and learn about it so around 2001 um, I uh, started to venture out, look at uh, some people that could help me build the business of the Edge Group, and mm -hmm. uh, which is still in existence today. I'm no longer a part of the group, but I'm still one of the founding members that started, right. which is a landscape architecture firm in Columbus, Ohio. That's amazing. Yeah. So at, at what point did um, you decide specifically what was next for you? Because I know that's your major, mm -hmm. but is that where your heart lies? Like, at, at what point did you figure that out? Um, 
Well, looking at the margins and saying, <laughs> I ain't going to get to 100 million doing this very long. Uh, but it was challenging because I, it showed me where I needed to fill in the gaps business-wise. Some mm-hmm. guys have that innately where they just know marketing, they know finances, they know how to how to um, acquire different assets and help that component. Well, I said I need to help with that. So I went and got my master's at Kellogg uh, School mm-hmm. of Management and, um, and, and really wanted to understand business as a whole. So, but what I found out in terms of my business, bringing my business model to class every single week for two years to say how can I expand it, what can I add to it, I realized that I might not be in the business I need to be in based right. off of my network, my strengths, and so forth. Mm-hmm. I, I may need to look at something that, um, think more entrepreneurial, you know, look for the bones of a business mm-hmm. and add my cachet to it, add my, my knowledge, uh, add some technology to it, but, but certainly take advantage of the people in my Rolodex. Yeah. And I, I, my reach extends to people in uh, entertainment world, uh, athletics, uh, the political world, um, higher education, uh, endowments, and so forth. And I said, hell, you know, my time is best used as I can be a a financial advisor because that's the world that I come from. I know it. I've lived it. Right. Um, And I had the relationships to get in the door. And if, you know, with the right uh, reputation and the right credentials, I can do just that. So I got my Series 7, my 66, fully licensed. Uh, and now I have the Edward George Wealth Management Group now. That's amazing. So yeah. what, what are the clap three? You don't want to? Yeah, you can clap for that. <laughs> You're going to do a lot of don't clapping. Don't be bashful now. Give me, I was trying to hold them love. off. Give me some Let me feel that. I was trying to hold them off, man, because I'm like, we're going to be clapping every two minutes when we talk about another accomplishment you got. Okay. But you're right, give him another hand, because he's looking at me crazy, <laughs> and I'm a little nervous. Um, nah. So talk about the three E's, because that's one I loved when I read that about you. Yeah, uh, you know, you look at my resume, I've done quite a few different diverse things. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people ask me what I did, they say, oh, I saw you acting, I saw you doing this, I saw you doing that. Well, it's kind of generalized now to yeah. my three E's. It was education, uh, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. And under entertainment is anything from commentating to acting on, on stage, Broadway, um, to uh, speaking, um, anything that I can generate revenue from under that umbrella, um, right. which, which I'm still doing now. And entrepreneurship is really, ha- I really massage it down to just one specific area, which is wealth management. And, um, and anything that can spawn off of that, being a passive investor in this or that mm-hmm. so forth. Um, that's the entrepreneurship umbrella. The education umbrella um, is to teach, is to give back, and to teach um, athletes about my experiences and experiences of others. If this is the business that you really want to be in, there are certain things you need to understand about that through a right. case study method. You know, understanding the difference between your agent, financial advisor, and your CPA. Mm-hmm. Well, you want to have the financial and CPA linked to a certain degree because funds has to be transferred, right. but the athlete should be deal. on the, the yep. yeah, he needs to be at the, at the top of the food chain. So it's really to empower those. Mm-hmm. So you're not so intimidated by finances and financial jargon because you don't talk about those things right. in, in our households. I mean, because it's very difficult. You know, uh, your, your power and your ego is tied up into your, into your pocket. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's what it is. So people are, are more prone to feel comfortable to talk about that. Okay, so here's the part where Eddie branches out. 
most athletes find it challenging enough to discover one second act. For Eddie George, when it came time to decide between two career opportunities, he said, why not both? Not many great actors have never been on Broadway. So to get up there and do that and do an iconic play, I said, I gotta do that. And I was left with, damn, do I, do I not do, do I not take my financial service license that I worked really hard to do, that I was already five months in deep? Or do I pursue this acting career? So I just said, you know what, the hell, I'm gonna do both. So I woke up, I wake up every morning over three months, wake up in the morning, do my test, go to my acting classes, singing lessons, do a test at night for three months. So I was committed to doing it. Wound up doing Broadway um, in 2016 for eight weeks. Um, got my Series 7 earlier that year, no, that November, and uh, I've been able to simultaneously build it. So it's, it's possible um, uh, for it to be done. So, you know, the tough, and the toughest part for me uh, during that time period was uh, studying for the Series 7. That, that, that's, that, that's, a, that's an animal. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's roughly six hours of test taking with questions this damn long on a computer. So as I'm scrolling down, it's like there's still more questions and then the answers are this long and it's one, two, three, four. So the answer is one, one, two, three, one, two, four, two, four, or none at all. And one word can screw it all up, can change the meaning of the question. And the first time I took it, 20 minutes in, hands on my head. Now, you're a football player. When you see hands on your head, what does that mean? You're defeated. I was mentally exhausted, and I had three or four hours of, of that to go through. I said, damn it, I don't care if I pass. I just want to get out of here. So um, I took it the second time and took the exam, and, and, and then you have to press uh, OK, and they give you your score right there on the spot. So either you're going to be happy or, or deflated when, right there on the spot. So when I passed that, that was, that was exciting, man. But that was uh, probably the toughest thing that I've ever had to do and prepare for, um, you know, not having a true financial background. That was just pure will and grit and grind and commitment. That my question. Like, how much of, like, background did you have in finances? Or is it just like, yo, I want to do this? Well, I'm committed. Let's figure I, it out. Well, having gone to Kellogg, that helped me out. But it wasn't a financial focus. Um, so I kind of knew a little bit about the stocks, bonds, and all, all of that. Um, but it was a, a commitment to get it done. You know, all I kept seeing on the other side of that pain was, was, was glory, was me passing that exam was my dreams, you know, was building a viable $500 billion business, having the relationships, that was on the other side. I kept, I kept that in the forefront of my mind and I got knocked down, you know, didn't pass the exam, but I never got discouraged. If I did get discouraged, it, I went through it for a few minutes or a few, few days or a few months rather and, and just eased on through it. Um, there were times, matter of fact, um, after I passed the Series 7, uh, the, well, after I failed the Series 7 the first time, my broker dealer told me, well, all you have to do is just really, you don't need the seven. All you have to do is just get the, the 66. So I studied for the 66 for another six months, passed that first time. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Yes, no more test taken. They're like, yeah, congratulations. So about three months later, they called me. I was like, well, there's an issue. 
We thought that all you needed was a 66, but really you needed a 65. So what you have to do now is either get to take the 7 or the 65. They said, well, take the 65 because it's similar to the 66. So I go into it with a real bad attitude. I scheduled that. Uh, as soon as I got the news, I scheduled the, the uh, uh, test that day, which is three months later. I go at it with a half-hearted uh, effort. Didn't pass the 65. So now I gotta get my seven. So I'm already knee deep in it. So that's when I studied to get the seven. So I didn't tell that bit of the story. So it was all of that, all of that, that I had to go through. You know, I was being tested throughout. Like you fail, you pass, you fail. So it was one door closed, another one opened up. So it was all of that that was going through my mind um, as I had, had to get through it. So that was, it was pretty tough, man. I love that. So now, I mean, again, you're even, different than the guests that I've typically had on the show because comparatively, you're really an expert in the finances. I'm not supposed to say I'm an expert. Not expert, but even, I mean, in, when we're talking about, again, athletes and finances, right? You were someone who's now knowledgeable, experienced yeah, and knowledgeable yeah. and lived it and tried and true on both sides of it. Bro. So for an athlete that's playing, what is the advice? Like if you had to give them one piece of advice for a current athlete, what would you tell them now? Oh, man. Uh, to become to become students of what you're walking into or begin with the end in mind so where do you see yourself at the end of your career financially spiritually emotionally um, the awards that you've won because that's very important you know I just had a conversation with somebody today it's not how you start in the NFL it's how you finish because if you come into this league a first-rounder and all you aspire to do is just make some money and be a celebrity and, and be on Instagram and all of that, okay, that'll last about seven, eight years and it'll fizzle out. But if you come in hungry and you about it and you really want to be the best at what you want to do and you about your craft, that's a 15-year career plus multiple contracts plus endorsements and so forth. So that's longevity. So it's very important how you see yourself to get there. So on the financial side, what is your end goal? What does that look like? Is it 50 million, 20 million, 30 million? And how are you gonna get there? So your spending habits that, that you're gonna start with on the, on the front end of that, you're gonna say, if my goal is to get to 50 million, is it worth me buying $500,000 worth of jewelry here? or taking that $500,000 and putting it toward an investment that's gonna compound interest over time toward my end goal. And it's shifting your thought and your perspective on finances and wealth, because you can live rich or you can live wealthy and have the wealthy mindset. So that's, that's what I would advise them to begin this journey with the end in mind. I love that. To just to treat even the experience as a professional athlete as a head start, which is all it is because it, an athlete's career is very short. Extremely short. Even 15 years. is Even 15 that's, years. That's, yeah. That is ancient in, in terms of football life. Right. But in real life, that's short. 15 years goes by. I've been out of the game for 15 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And, and so you've got to understand that time, you know, is so short is what you do with it. In football, basketball, hockey, any, any sport – is just a platform. That's just the beginning, is what you do with it, the pillars that you build off of after that. So, and again, my favorite thing about you is that even in this, the theme of the conversation is like, you don't let other people define 
what you want to do and if you're able to do it. And when you want something, you put the work in and you go get it. So what advice would you give uh, a current professional athlete about crossing over into the business world or any other world outside of the, the sports industry or the, or the thing that they're used to? Find out what you're passionate about. Um, I think that's so important to have, to operate from not the pocketbook or the pocket, but more so from the passion that the gifts that you have within. You know, if it's to, to be an actor, is it to be um, uh, into uh, entrepreneurship or whatever that is, what is your passion? How are you helping others? How are you helping influence others? And, and start with that. And then the products and everything else, the business model will follow that. And so the goal is, is to not to live a life uh, for accolades or awards, but to live a life out of fulfillment. If, you, if you're living a fulfilled life, it doesn't matter, you know, if you won an Oscar or a Heisman or not. You know, you know who you are in that in that sense. So I would start with the spirit and building that, rebuilding the spirit, understanding that hell. When I when I was done with the game, I was like, well, who the hell am I? You know? Yeah. After everything, After everything I've done, who the hell am I? Because you've gone, I've gone through this whole roller coaster of emotions, highs and lows of winning games and, and signing big contracts and popping bottles and, and going from the bottom to the top, you know, from a, going from Houston to Tennessee and, and, and rebranding that whole situation and bringing the NFL to Middle Tennessee, going to the Super Bowl. And, and then my career ends in Dallas, you know, getting yelled at by Bill Parcells to get the hell off his football field because I went the wrong way. And I kicked off a scout team. And, damn, I'm thinking, you know, here I am. I won a Heisman, four-time Pro Bowl, all these things going. And this is how it ends? So, really, who are you? So I had to, you know, go to counseling and, 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 and find that out and to find out what my purpose is. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like, oh, what's my purpose? Oh, this is my purpose. Nah, it don't work like that. It ain't, it's not a linear process. It's cylindrical. You go from A to Z. Like, damn. Then from Z to B. And from B to D. Back to B. Or back to A. But you want to see E, F, and G, but you got to go through Z, Y, and D again to get to that. See, so, so it's, it's different. And, and that's what I've, I've had to learn, like, in terms of my life and making that transition and to really focus on self-development. So I would, if I'm the athlete, it's not about the business. It's about um, evolving and growing and not, don't have this retirement mentality. Like, if you're believers in the Bible, you can't find the word retirement in there. Because we weren't meant to retire, you're meant to evolve and grow and to move on to the next thing. So um, I would say definitely work on the personal development side, deal with the emotional issues first. And then as you do that and walk down that path, it will be revealed what your next step is. It will be revealed what your passion, your next talent, those seeds that have been planted in, you know, in me a long time ago are just sprouting out now, now that I'm in, you know, my mid-30s. Yeah. <laughs> 28 years old. Yeah, always, um, forever. So when did you start viewing yourself as more than an athlete? Because I know even after retirement, going through the, 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 the mental health state, which is a big conversation in sports, right? Because it's weird because it's so connected to sport. 
Like, and the anxiety of not wanting to mess up is what drove me to be pretty good. And I'm, I'm sure like you, the fear of failure is what drove you to be one of the greatest. So at what point did you start viewing yourself as more than an athlete? Uh, that's, a, that's a fine line because again, you as athletes, um, you, you pour so much into building the athlete. I guess it's when you feel your shoulders cracking a little bit more, you know, there's not running as smooth, your knees hurt a little bit more when you get older and you begin to say, damn, okay, what, what, what is this all about really? You know, what is my, what is my true legacy? And it's, it's, it's more than just football because now you, you get your mid-30s, you're like, the football is a young man's game. It's, it's like I still wear a number, you know what I mean? There's more power to that. The guy that, that owns the team, that's where I want to be. How do I get from wearing the number 27 to being in, 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 in the owner's box, you know, with $27 billion under my ass and demands? That's, that's what, so I, that's kind of like my, my thinking was. I was like, man, I, I, you can play the game, but there's a certain point in time when you start to really become an adult and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm running around here smashing skulls. It's fun, but there's a point in time where I have to aspire to be more and I want to do more, not be looked at as the dumb jock who, um, who's doing nothing after his playing days are done. And, and let, me, let me be clear, no one is dumb. You know, you just have to have the initiative and the fortitude and the tenacity to go after that next thing and have the faith to walk by sight, you know, uh, not by sight, but by faith, you know. So that's, that's the key. That's it for this branching out episode of Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Make sure you check us out again next week for another incredible conversation. But until then, please subscribe to the podcast and submit a review wherever you listen to your shows. Much appreciation to our partner for this show, Chase. Head over to Chase.com to see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, TD St. Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.